You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message from Senior Pastor Robin McMillan. Before we continue uh, our study of the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 8, really a very small part of it. There's so much in it. It would take at least two hours to go through it all, but... um, I went to, um, I was in Nashville this past week at HarperCollins, who are publishing my book called Harbinger of Hope, and there it is. Don't cheer. It's okay. I won't be offended. And um, you know, we had some meetings about uh, marketing and, and different things like that, and they, um, the, interesting way, uh, the interesting thing was an hour before I got there, six of these showed up in a box. They didn't even have them. They didn't know they were going to be there. So I was really excited about that. And, um, man, this is such a good book. Gosh. <laughs> you think I'm being funny, don't you? It may be funny, but it is true. I'm really excited about this. And um, it uh, you can find it on Amazon. Um, and it you should have it, I think, uh August the 28th, which is a Tuesday or Wednesday. So it's for pre-sale, so you can go pre-buy it if you'd like it. And um, anyway, thank you, Lord. Lord, bless this book. Somebody help me here. Lord, bless this book. Harbinger of hope. Lord, our nation needs hope. And I'm asking you to use this to touch people's lives, to encourage people. Lord, we need your touch in our life. We need your insight in our lives. We need your spirit, your presence and power in our lives more and more and more. Uh, In Jesus' name, Lord, use this book. Use me. Use us. Amen. Amen. Okay. Let's read um, the first nine verses of Mark chapter 8. Um. Tell you what, that's a lot. I'll read it and you can listen. How many of you want to do that? Everybody give me that? I'll read, you listen. Or you can read and I'll listen. Which? No, we're good. I'm reading from the, the Passion Translation. I've really enjoyed this translation. It's really been great. During those days, another massive crowd gathered to hear Jesus. And again, there was no food and the people were hungry. So Jesus called his disciples to come near him And said to them, my heart goes out to this crowd, for they've already been here with me for three days with nothing to eat. I'm concerned that if I send them home hungry, they'll be exhausted along the way, for some of them have come a long, long way just to be with me. His disciples replied, but could anyone possibly get enough food to satisfy a crowd this size out here in this isolated place? Jesus asked them, how many loaves of flat bread have you got? Seven, they replied. Jesus instructed the crowd to sit down on the grass. After he took the seven loaves, he gave thanks to God. He broke them and started handing them to his disciples. They kept distributing the bread until they had served the entire crowd. They also had a few small fish. And after giving thanks for these, Jesus had his disciples serve them to the crowd. Everyone ate 
until they were satisfied. That's a great verse. Everyone ate until they were satisfied. Then the disciples gathered up the broken pieces and filled seven large baskets with the leftovers. About 4,000 people ate the food that had been multiplied. Then he dismissed the crowd. One of the things that um, really strikes me here is that, and, and I'm not sure exactly how to say this, it's as though Jesus couldn't do this miracle without someone else's help. And I mean that in two levels. I mean, obviously, he needed supernatural help. But also, he needed people who were willing to give what they had. And so the idea behind that is, Jesus does it. Number one, Jesus really wants to help people. He gave his life to that end. Number two, the way he helps people is he finds other people who are willing to give themselves, give their lives, and give what they have to see that happen. And so as I was reading through this, I made, I made a bunch of notes, and um, I just want to get, get through some of this. One of the things that really struck me was the heart of Jesus, just to know what Jesus thinks, just to know how he feels toward us is so meaningful. In verse 2, Jesus said, My heart goes out to this crowd. The sentiment of Jesus. In verse 3, he says, I'm concerned that if I send them home hungry, they'll be exhausted along the way, for some of them have come a long, long way just to be with me. So we see there what motivated Jesus. Why did he, why did he enact this miracle? Why did he do what he did? It was because it was in his heart to do it. And I think we need to recognize the, the necessity for truly having compassion for people. There's, there's something when compassion and faith meet one another that releases some very tremendous, over-the-top, beyond our understanding, beyond our uh, ability to do ourselves kind of things. That's a pretty long adjective I just made up there. But anyway, Jesus says, my heart goes out to this crowd. Then he says, I'm concerned. And the thing that struck me was one of the reasons Jesus was concerned was he felt responsible for these 4,000 people. And I'm sure... On a personal basis, Jesus did not know, but a very, very, very small percentage of them. But he said, I feel, he said, some of them have come a long, long way just to be with me. And that's great to realize, you know, the heart of Jesus, uh, that his heart goes out. You know, God is not just some distant concept, but we find the greatest understanding or picture of God in the life of Jesus. And here he says to him, here's how he feels about crowds of people he does not even know personally. He says, my heart goes out to them. He says, I feel responsible for them. I'm concerned if they go home hungry. Um, the next thing I noticed in verse 8, Jesus says, Everyone ate until they were satisfied. 
Everyone ate until they were satisfied. One of the things I felt about that is we need to begin to see God as being the God who's more than enough. I think we have known God, many of us have known God as the God that uh, we get, barely get by with. But that's not really what's in his heart. God, in God's heart is that in your life, you not just barely make it, but that you be satisfied. God has that intent. God has that in his heart for you, that you don't just make it, that you just don't barely eat by, that you don't just barely... Uh, barely get through, but that you're satisfied. Um, then I wanted to talk about the process of blessing, the process of blessing. In verse 6, Jesus instructed the crowd to sit down on the grass. After he took the seven loaves, the Bible tells us he gave thanks to God. And so you see a process here that Jesus goes through. He's thankful and then he breaks, and then he distributes. And one of the things that has struck me, and I think one of the most important understandings the Lord has ever given to me is on the power of thanksgiving, the the importance of being thankful. And being thankful for what you have prepares the way for increase. Let me, let me ask this this morning. How many of you not just want more, but you need more? You need more. Well, see, here we are. We're looking at the God whose desire is to be to us a God who's more, more than enough. And I, I hear people, a lot of people on the radio seem to um, sort of put down the idea of, well, they call it the prosperity gospel. And, um, you know, every single doctrine can be abused or it, it can be taken to extremes. But why in the world? would we believe that God did not have enough to bless his people? What I mean, I don't think they've ever had a great depression in heaven. God has more than enough. But the idea is, how does it work? How, how do we develop a relationship with him, not, not primarily just for self-centered purposes, but how can we live life to the fullest? How can we be for our families everything we're supposed to be, do everything we're supposed to do? How can we be that for a community? How can we be that for our city? One of the greatest things I've ever been a part of is when we uh, raised $60,000 and gave it to this uh, essentially African-American church across the parking lot for us. I'm so glad we can do things like that. That's what we need to do. But one of the things I've realized is abundance is directly connected to people who have a heart to give, obviously, but people who are thankful for what they have and who are trying to do something for someone else. But this idea of being grateful, we need to be grateful for what we have. And I think sometimes... Complaining and not being thankful for what we have actually, and I don't understand how all this works. I know God's not vindictive. I know he doesn't hold back. He doesn't try to punish. He doesn't treat people that way. But there's something that happens when people are truly grateful for what it is they have 
right now. In other words, their focus is not on what they don't have. It's on what they do have. And they make a heartfelt connection with God to be truly, truly grateful for it. And I try to practice that. You know, I've got a challenge in my knee. I've got a challenge in my back. And I'm on an airplane and I'm crammed in this seat. And I'm dragging bags to the airport. And then they're making me sink for my supper, which is horrible. And then I had to walk blocks and blocks to do this thing I wanted to do. And my back hurts. My knee hurts. And somebody says, how was your trip? And I said, Man, it was great. I could have had to ride a donkey to Nashville. I got to be in a plane. Got over there an hour and a half. Yeah. Now, you've got to understand, I am, I have been by nature a card-carrying complainer. But I've been redeemed. I have been ransomed. And I know a very vital key is thanksgiving, being grateful. My old partner used to say, well, Robin, is your glass half full or half empty? Well, that's a good question. That's a great question. So Jesus was thankful, truly thankful for what he had. And he blessed it and he gave it away. And one of the ideas that have really struck me is about Jesus breaking the bread. Jesus broke the bread. How many of you realize there are painful aspects to the Christian life? Let me, let me get a show of hands. How many of you realize that, uh, pain is part of the process? Well, for our lives to be fruitful, we really need to be broken. And what that means to me is there, um, let's say you're an employer. And you had two people that came in to be employed. Both of them needed work. And one of them was negative and one of them was positive. Both of them had the same skill level. Who would you hire? You would hire the positive person. Here's the point. The negative person hadn't been broken of a bad attitude. And because he wasn't broken, God couldn't use him at the level he wanted to use him. And so this idea about God breaking us, what, what I'm talking about is the discipline of the Lord, the correction of the Lord, where the Lord loves us so much that he's willing to correct us. And I was, I was reading this morning out of Hebrews 12, um, 5 and 6. This is so good. And have you forgotten his encouraging words spoken to you as his children? He said, my child, don't underestimate the value of the discipline and training of the Lord God or get depressed when he has to correct you. For the Lord's training of your life is the evidence of his faithful love. And when he draws you to himself... It improves, it proves you are his delightful child. Fully embrace God's correction as part of your training, for he is doing what any loving father does for his children. For who has ever heard of a child who never needed to be corrected? Now here's something nobody does, but we should. We all should welcome God's discipline. How many of you are welcoming God's discipline in your life this morning? painful 
cries. Okay, that's all right. We should all welcome God's discipline as the validation of authentic sonship. For if we have never once endured his correction, it only proves we are strangers and not his sons. And so the correction process, the breaking process, the disciplining process of God actually is a good thing. It's to prepare us to be fully and completely used, really, and to be satisfied with the life he's brought us into. You have to remember, when God's dealing with you, blessing and fulfillment really is at the end of the process. That's a great idea. Think about this one again. Focus on what you have, not what you don't have. Now, put what you have and put yourself in God's hands. Well, how do you do that? Is that a good question? How do you put yourself in God's hands? How do you give yourself to God? First of all, you have to decide to do it. And then I believe you need to make some kind of a statement of commitment. You need to say it. You need to give yourself to God. You need to give what you have to God. You need to put it in his hands, and I believe he'll really bless it. Uh, in Second Kings 4, we have the story of a widow woman. Um, her husband served the Lord. Actually, I believe he helped served, uh, serve the prophet. And he died. And the creditors were coming. And the creditors were going to take the widow's two children because they couldn't pay their bills. And so they came to Elisha and told him this. So Elisha said, what shall I do for you? Tell me. What do you have in the house? And she said, your maid servant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. The prophet said, go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons and then pour into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons who brought the vessels to her, and she poured it out. Now it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There's not another one. So the oil ceased. And then the, the prophet said, Well, go sell this, pay your bills, and live on the rest. So the, the thing I recognized here was that when, when the, the prophet Ask her one question. It was, all right, you're broke. You can't pay your bills. He said, what do you have? And she said, nothing. Oh, but a little jar of oil. And so what she does is she believes that God wants to do something supernatural. And the prophet tells her, Go to all of your neighbors and get as many empty jars and pots as you can and bring them back here. Well, that took faith. So when she brings them all back, she takes that little, I bet it wasn't even that big, little jar of oil, and she pours and pours and pours and pours. That vessel fills up. So then she pours in the next one 
and that one fills up, and the next, and the next, and the next. And the interesting thing say, uh, that, that the Bible says is that when there was nothing else to pour in, the oil ceased. And so there was a relationship between the faith of the woman, her desire to pour, and receptacles to receive what God wanted to give. My goodness. Don't underestimate what you have. The Lord could come to you this morning and say, what do you have? And and your mind could say, I don't have hardly anything. And the Lord could pinpoint one small thing in your life and give you a divine direction that could absolutely change the entire course, not only of your life, but the life of generations to come. Generations to come. Now, when I was thinking about this morning, I thought about Jonathan Edwards. And I remember um, an article I had read about what happens to a, a godly man who completely gives himself to the Lord and what happens to an ungodly person who only lives for himself and goes and does whatever he wants. And so we have this example of Jonathan Edwards. He had, uh, he was a Puritan preacher from the 1700s and he and his wife had 11 children. And at the turn of the 20th century, an American educator, uh, a pastor, A.E. Winship decided to trace out the descendants of Jonathan Edwards 150 years after he had died. Here's what he found. He compared it. Let me tell you what he did before. He compared what he found to another man named Max Jukes. And Jukes' legacy came to the forefront when they discovered that in his family tree, 42 different men in the New York prison system were traced back to him. That was his heritage. But when you look at Jonathan Edwards' godly heritage, there was a U.S. vice president, three United States senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 65 professors, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, and 100 missionaries. That was the result of not just giving a little jar of oil and getting a big jar of oil, not just giving a little loaf of bread and feeding 4,000 people. That was a picture of a man completely giving his life, and it affects generation after generation after generation. 100 missionaries. It's incredible. 100 lawyers. Oh, I'm not sure about that. 80. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> All right, what about Max Jukes? Seven murderers, 60 thieves. It says 50 women of debauchery. I'm not quite sure what debauchery is, but it's not good. 130 other convicts, 310 paupers, with over 2,300 years lived in poorhouses, 400 who were physically wrecked by indulgent living. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. That's what happens when you give your life to God. That's the potential. That's the potential.
One of the things that struck me too was after Jesus gave the loaves and fishes, they had more left over than they started with. They had seven large baskets. I was, um, I used to drive down to the lake a number of years ago in a ministry I was part of. On my day off, I'd drive down to the lake and I'd sit in my car and I'd look out at the lake and I would, I would pray. And I was asking the Lord one day to speak to me. And right after I did, an acorn dropped out of this tree and hit my windshield and got stuck in my windshield wiper. And I felt like the Lord said, go, go pick up that acorn. You asked me to speak to you, go pick up that acorn. So I was looking at this acorn, and I remembered something I'd heard. You can count the number of acorns in an oak tree, but you can't count the number of oak trees in an acorn. And the idea there is you have no idea the potential in your life if you commit yourself to God and you give what you have to him. You have no idea. I can't imagine Jonathan Edwards knew, and I can't imagine Max Jukes knew, knew either. So, one of the problems with the Gospel of Mark is there's too much in it to cover. But I did want to read one last passage as a challenge. This is the very last section of chapter 8. It begins with 34, and it's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. What it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus summoned the crowd along with his disciples and had them gather around, and he said to them, If you truly want to follow me, you should at once completely disown your own life. And you must be willing to share my cross and experience it as your own as you continually surrender to my ways. For if you let your life go for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, you will continually experience true life. But if you choose to keep your life for yourself, you will forfeit what you try to keep. For what use is it to gain all this wealth and power of this world with everything it could offer you at the cost of your own life? And what could be more valuable to you than your own soul? So among the unfaithful and sinful people living today, if you're ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of you when he makes his appearance with his holy messengers in the glorious splendor of his fathers. Pretty strong words, but I really am convinced that Jesus knew what he was talking about. So here's what we'll do. Why don't you stand with me and we shall pray. Lord, that's remarkable, that comparison between Jonathan Edwards and uh, Max Jukes. Lord, here's what I want to be. I want to be in the Jonathan Edwards category. I want generations to follow because of what you did in my life.
And Lord, I pray for those of us here that we feel that way, that we really will make that commitment, that we really will understand to follow you will cost us something. But to follow you is actually the key to experiencing life at the richest and the highest level. So, Lord, bless Queen City Church this morning. Um, I pray for our week, Lord, that it would be blessed, that it would be full of your presence, that you would touch our hearts, that you would communicate with us, that we would continue to develop a relationship with you and with other people. And, Lord, once again, we do pray for the safety uh, of those in the Northern California who are going through this fire, and we ask that you would send the rain and put it out. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.